Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 70. It's titled, Rule Number One and the Investor's Journey. One of my favorite stories is the Odyssey. It's the epic Greek poem of Odysseus, king of Ithaca, and his 10-year journey to return from the Trojan War and reunite with his beloved wife, Penelope. I love the imagery within the poem, epithets such as rosy-fingered dawn. And, And as you read it, I remember always being hungry because they were always having feast with roast, with bread, always describing the bread. It always reminded me of the pan frances or the loaves I would get when I lived in Mexico. Now, the Odyssey follows what is known as the hero's journey, which is a pattern of narrative identified by the American scholar Joseph Campbell. And the hero's journey, you see it in in books such as The Hobbit, certainly in The Odyssey, but many, many other stories follow this. And elements of it include the ordinary world, the call to adventure, the refusal of the call, meeting with the mentor, test allies and enemies, the ordeal, the reward, the road back, the resurrection, sort of that final test, and then the return home. We are all on our own hero's journey when it comes to investing. We no longer have these guaranteed pensions to take care of us in retirement. Now we have to find our own way and save and navigate the financial markets. Now, there are dozens and dozens of ways to invest. Is there a right way? There's not. I've met with hundreds of hundreds of managers, investment managers, hedge fund managers, They all go about it differently because they have followed a different investor's journeys. They have different temperament. They have different interests, different experiences, including the market environment where they had their formidable investment years. The experiences they had when they started investing. Investors that started during the bear markets of the 70s have a very different outlook on investing than those that started in 1980. Certainly our skills and talents also play into how we go about investing. Now this week I got an email from Tommy who, like all of us, is on his own investor journey and he came across a podcast that that troubled him a little bit. And here's his email. I was hoping to get your opinion on the subject of a recent podcast that I came across. The Rule One Investing Strategy. Up until now, I've been in the camp of not trying to beat the market and sticking to indexes. 
My understanding from this recent podcast is that while most why most most mutual funds don't beat the market is because the managers are working from the efficient market theory, unlike those of Buffett, Munger, and Einhorn. In short, are these guys crazy? I'm not looking to move my savings over to these type of accounts. I'm just interested. Now, there's a lot going on in that email. He mentions Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, and David Einhorn. Buffett and Munger are, I think Munger is still with Berkshire Hathaway, but but Warren Buffett has run Berkshire Hathaway, which started out as investment partnership. He is a renowned investor purchasing quality franchise companies. We'll talk a little bit about, more about how Buffett invests because this podcast that Tommy refers to incorporates a lot of the things you learn from Warren Buffett. David Einhorn is a hedge fund manager. I've not met him. I'm not exactly familiar with how he's invested. Please, he's a value manager. But Tommy's asking about a couple things. One, these managers such as Buffett, and particularly the type of investing recommended by this podcast, is it a crazy way to go about it? Short answer is no. We're going to explore how they're recommending it. But he also asks why don't most mutual funds beat the market and mentions the efficient market theory or the efficient market hypothesis. We're going to talk about all that today because it it all plays into our own individual investor journey. Now, about this podcast. I love podcasts, and I love investing podcasts, and I like to look at what's going on with the different investing podcasts. I don't see them as competition. I see them as compliments, and, and I learn and listen to some of them, and I learn from a lot of them. Now, this particular podcast is called, that he refers to, Tommy refers to, is called Invested, and it's by Phil and Daniel, Danielle Town. Now, a few weeks ago, I had never heard of Phil Town, and the only reason I stumbled upon this podcast is occasionally I'll go into iTunes and I put money for the rest of us in because I wanted to find it. Probably I was looking for all those great reviews that you have left, some, some not so great. So by great reviews, I mean, not that they're all great, I meant... I think it's great you leave reviews so I can get the feedback. And so I searched for money for the rest of us, and another podcast popped up next to it that I hadn't seen before, and it was called Invested. I looked at what it was. It was by Phil Town. And in the author byline, it says, Revolt against Wall Street. Invest on your own. Live rich like Warren Buffett, Munger, and Pabrai. A take on investing different than NPR Planet Money, Dave Ramsey, Susie Orman, Jim Cramer, rule-breaking investing, and money for the rest of us. I was flattered. Hey, he put me in the same camp as Planet Money and Dave Ramsey and Susie Orman and Jim Cramer. I wouldn't say I'm in the same camp, but he's saying I'm different than what he's doing. And so that raised my curiosity. What is he doing in terms of how he's investing, his investor journey, versus how I do it? So this past weekend, I read Phil Town's book, Rule Number One, The Simple Strategy for Getting Rich in Only 15 Minutes Per Week. The first line, the book is a, a simple guide to returns of 15% in the stock market with almost no risk. In fact, Rule Number One Investing is practically immune to the ups and downs of the stock market. And by the end of this book, I'll have proved it to you. I read the book, and it's good. He, if you want to buy individual stocks, 
you could do worse than following this methodology. He focuses on not buying a stock, but buying a business, which is exactly what Warren Buffett does when he talks about buying a, a company. Buffett buys a lot of private companies. He buys some public companies. Now, this rule number one is, exact, is from Warren Buffett, which is, number one, don't lose money. Rule number two, refer back to rule number one. That's one of Buffett's famous quotes. Now, that's a lot of promises at the beginning of the book. 15% return, very, very little risk, immune to the ups and downs of the stock market. Now, as you read, you realize that immune to the ups and downs of the stock market does not mean that your portfolio will not go up and down. Immune, it means not affected by it. When Buffett says don't lose money, Buffett loses money if you are marking his portfolio to market. Berkshire Hathaway, the stock, lost over 40% in 2008. If you had invested at the top, you would have lost money. And this gets to the idea, is is it really a loss if you don't sell? But the way that Town is saying to invest is to buy individual stocks. In other words, buy businesses. And he uses the four M's, meaning, moat, management, margin of safety. Meaning is find something that you relate to and you can apply your values to buy the companies that you want, but something that you're passionate about, you have an interest in, you know something about. Moat is businesses that have some type of sustainable competitive advantage. So franchise type companies. Management, this is a big component that Buffett focuses on. You got to have good management, honest management, and, and you want management whose interest is aligned with yours as a business owner. Finally, you have margin of safety. And by margin of safety, you're trying to purchase these companies at half off. Find a dollar for 50 cents, as Phil Town says. Now, you have to look at something to figure out these companies. And he has what are known as the big five. And these are quantitative characteristics. And you want these to be greater than 10% in terms of annual growth rate. And preferably over a 10-year period of time. Per year, so consistent growth, sales growth, earnings per share growth, equity growth rate, free cash growth rate, and return on investment capital. So those are the type of companies that he is seeking and the kind of companies in his book he's teaching you to find. Now, you have to look at Town's investor's journey. He was former military, and he found himself in 1980 as a river guide in Idaho, Utah, Montana. He, in, in the beginning of his book, he gives these harrowing tales of, of going down the river, and one where they almost lost their lives. And on that particular trip, that's where he met his mentor, and his mentor began to teach him how to invest in the stock market. Town said he turned $1,000 into a million in five years. He began investing in 1980. When I read something like this or, or read how somebody invests, I always am looking to put them into context. I've met with so many managers, I want to know how they're investing. Town is what is known, and he probably wouldn't say this, he's a quality growth 
investor. He's trying to find franchise-type companies, cheap, so very, very inexpensive, that have consistent earnings growth, low debt, consistent franchise, good management, and some type of competitive advantage. Back in 1980, those were really, really cheap companies, as was all the stock market. The median price-to-earnings ratio on stocks in the S&P 500, so the median company, was less than eight times earnings. Now it is over 21. I can imagine town in 1980 going to the public library, going to Value Line, which was this sort of this newspaper-like magazine that had data on every single company or the companies or the bigger companies, the S&P 500, and, and doing all this work by hand, looking at the 10K financial reports and finding those diamonds in the rough, those franchise-type companies. In his podcast, he talks about how much easier it is to do today. With all the computing power and free resources, a site such as finviz.com, where you can screen and you can, you can screen for his big five numbers quite simply. I did it over this past weekend to see, are there any companies that met this criteria? I found four, none of which I would say were franchise companies, which gets to the challenge which this, with this approach. With investing, you always have to ask, who is on the other side of the trade? Investing, buy a stock, is an auction market. You buy, somebody sold it to you. Who sold you that stock? Back in 1980, generally, it was an unsophisticated retail investor that was selling you that company. Today, it is an institution that has as much or even more computing power, resources, just just sheer ability to churn through data and, and get or at least strive to get a competitive advantage. Back in 1980, I mentioned how low stocks were. The S&P 500 return, its five-year return ending from 1980 to 1985, annualized was 14.7%. The 10-year return ending 1989 was 20.4% annualized. For the 20 years ending 1999, it was 17.9% annualized. Beginning to invest in the early 80s, throughout the 80s and 90s, it was a great time to invest. You could find good companies. The market went up. You had a huge tailwind. We were in a bull market. And you would do really, really well finding individual companies. You contrast that with the bear market, the 10 years ending 2008, the S&P 500 returned negative 1.4%. For the 15 years, it was 6.8%. For the 20 years, 8.4% annualized. Now, we've been in a bull market since 2008. At the end of 2008, you could again find these franchise-type companies, and that's why for the six years ending 2014, the stock market as measured by the S P 500 has returned 17.2% annualized. My point is the starting point matters when you begin to buy stocks, no matter what type of companies you're looking for, if you're looking to buy businesses, businesses, this way of investing is challenging in today's environment because everybody has the same resources. How are you going to get some type of competitive edge over whoever sold you that stock and find those companies at half off? It can't be done. 
Now, after a, a bear market, it can be done, but I would suggest that there, well, first of all, I'm not suggesting you don't do this. I think as part of everyone's investor's journey, you should explore buying and researching individual stocks. I spent several years as a credit analyst just tearing up financial statements and digging into companies, and I've done it with individual companies. I wanted to be, when I got into the investment business, I wanted to be an individual research analyst in New York. And I had the opportunity, but when it finally came, I declined to do so because I found, at the end, I wasn't interested in that. I loved asset classes and macro. I have a different investor's journey. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. For many years, I had a client in New Orleans, and I'd go down there twice a year. I love this client. We'd sit at this big oak table. The window would be open. I could hear the sounds of New Orleans. I'd look out at the live oak. And one of their managers was Montagan Caldwell, a Southern manager based in Atlanta. And here's how they describe how they manage money. They run a large cap growth portfolio comprised of 30 to 40 high-quality growth stocks, generally greater than $5 billion in market capitalization, that offer compelling combinations of earnings growth and attractive valuation. Our objective is to identify stocks that are selling at a discount to intrinsic value and exhibit above-median near-term relative earning strength. We favor companies with leading franchise, proven management teams, strong finance, and attractive long-term secular growth characteristic. They're looking for the same type of stocks that Phil Town is, and their return, their 30-year annualized return is 11.6% net of fees. Not quite 15%, but 11.6% compared to 10.3% for the Russell 1000 Growth Index June as of June 30th, 2015. If you don't want to buy individual stocks, you can Use the same approach and find more concentrated managers. There's a, a iShares MSCI USA quality factor ETF that does the same thing. But again, the starting point matters. If you only buy quality growth stocks, that's like playing the same piano key. I prefer to play all the piano keys and go to where the most value is. Right now, and I've mentioned this in, in a couple episodes ago, Master Limited Partnerships are extremely attractively priced right now with yields of over 7%. This is as of August 2015, if you're listening to this later. Now, what about the idea that why don't most managers beat the market? First off, fees Active managers charge fees. A lot of times they don't have enough good ideas. Sometimes the first five ideas would be great, but when you need 30 or 40, maybe not so good. It's an extremely competitive environment. Who's on the other side of the trade? It is so much more difficult to be an active manager. Active managers, mutual fund managers face professional risk. They're tied to this benchmark. They're compared to it every single month. That can impact how they go about managing money. And the final thing is they can't predict the future, which is one reason I don't invest like Phil Town. Here's a quote from his book. To know that you have found $1 for 50 cents, you have to know the value of a business which requires you to predict its future to some degree. I don't want to be in the business of predicting the future. 
I want to take advantage of what's happening in the market now, focus on areas that appear to be undervalued, and invest in that way. Now, let's turn to this idea in the last few minutes of the efficient market hypothesis. I learned this when I was an undergraduate in college and again in graduate school. It's one of the cornerstones of investing in terms of the theory of investing. I don't believe it, but here's what it says. It, the efficient market hypothesis suggests it's nearly impossible for investors to outperform the market because securities that comprise asset classes reflect all relevant information. The price is always right when it comes to investing. It does not deviate from fair value. That's what efficient market hypothesis means. But what do we mean by the market? Efficient market proponents classify the market as the capitalization-weighted sum of every investable financial asset. So everything that all investors own together is the market. And that's called the market portfolio or the global market portfolio. And since all prices are correct, that means that global market portfolio is the most efficient, super efficient. You can't do better than the market portfolio because it is the most diversified and it's priced right. There's an academic paper titled The Global Multi-Asset Market Portfolios by Ronald Dujwich probably didn't pronounce it right, Trevin Lamb and Lauren Swinkles. And they estimate that the global market portfolio is 36% stocks, 29% government bonds, 18.5% investment-grade bonds, 5% real estate, 3% emerging markets, 3.6% private equity, 2.3% inflation in that bond index bonds, and 1.7% non-investment-grade bonds. Furthermore, The equity allocation of this market portfolio is 52% stocks, 48% non-U.S. stocks. So that's the global market portfolio. And the thought is it reflects the average risk of all investors. And so if you really believe in the efficient market and you're really into index and passive investment, what you should be doing is buying the market portfolio or as close to you as you can get to it, because that is the most efficient, and you can't improve upon that. It's where you can get the best expected return for the minimum amount of risk. Now, if you are less, more risk-averse than the average investor represented it there, then you should buy that portfolio with a portion of your assets and buy the rest cash. So you can't do better than that, according to the efficient market hypothesis, which means that if your portfolio of index funds differs from that, you have different weights, more in U.S. stocks, more in in, in equity overall, that means you're taking an active bet in the investment markets. Yes, using index funds, but if you are actively betting against the global market portfolio, seeking to outperform it. Now, Many investors don't realize they're doing it, so they, they, they're not consciously doing that, but that is, in fact, what is happening. So it's important to recognize that, you know, what are the active decisions that passive investors make? Another active decision they make is to rebalance their portfolio. Many investors use 
modern portfolio theory or, or some type of either their financial advisor or some type of software program to come up with an optimized, efficient portfolio of certain target weights. They invest in index funds using that, and then they rebalance their portfolio back to those targets. Why do they do that? Well, if you truly believe that prices are correct, that markets are efficient, that every single asset, every single security is priced right, you wouldn't rebalance. You would... Because if you started out with an optimized portfolio, as a year later, if you now have more in stocks because the market appreciated, that should still be the most efficient portfolio if you believe in this theory. If you rebalance because you're overweight in stocks, you're essentially saying stocks are overvalued, and that's not a sign of efficient market if an asset class is overvalued. Alternatively, You still believe the market's efficient. You don't think the stocks are overvalued, but you rebalance because you think over the long term that stocks aren't going to go up in value, that asset classes are going to start and where close to where they started, but there's going to be gyrations in between. I'll leak to a paper by William Sharp, published November 2009. It's called Adaptive Asset Allocation Policies, and he talks about this, this idea that If you're rebalancing, generally you're a contrarian and you need to have a certain belief. If you believe in the efficient market, then the only reason to rebalance is because you think markets are going to go sideways over time with lots of up and down. Because if you believe the markets are efficient, that prices are correct, then during – because markets – over the long term, either are upward trending or perhaps downward trending. If they're upward trending, you're better on not better off not rebalancing because if you a year later you sell stocks, put it back in bonds, rebalance, and stocks continue to go up, you would have done worse than buy and hold. Or if the market is falling and you sell bonds and buy stocks and stocks continue to fall, you would have done worse than buy and hold investing. Rebalancing only works. In this way, if you believe markets are efficient, if markets go basically stay the same over time, but if they go up and down. So then rebalancing works. Again, the, quali- the, the qualification is if you believe markets are efficient and every price is right, every asset class is right. If you truly, truly believe that, then you should be holding the market portfolio. And anything different from that in terms of your weights is an active bet. I don't believe that. I don't believe in the efficient market hypothesis. I believe investor emotions cause asset classes to get out of whack from their fair value. At the same time, I believe it is very, very difficult to outperform buying individual securities and by outperform outperform any benchmark within your universe because the it requires predicting the future and i don't want to invest predicting the future because i have found as i've met with hundreds of managers that as you dig down deeper and deeper and start making specific predictions about what's going to happen to a company invariably something unexpected happens And so that's why I like to buy baskets of undervalued securities when they're available. They're not always available. MLPs are now, there's a basket that's undervalued that 
in my mind, is embedded with positive surprises. I don't have to pick which MLP is going to do well. I have a basket of them. Those baskets aren't always available. Sometimes you just have exposure to the market just to have some exposure. And that's why I adjust my portfolio based on market conditions. I don't buy individual stocks anymore. It's not part of my investor's journey. It's something that you will have to consider in terms of your investor journey. When I was an investment advisor, I used to do a quarterly webcast for our financial planner clients and our institutional clients. This was in the early days of webcasts. I'd be in Idaho in my office above my garage. I I would run all the tech by myself. I'd run the slides. I'd answer the question. I'd do the chat room, or at least we would do phone call or questions via phone. I kind of miss those days. And so I'm scheduling an event on YouTube live September 8th, 2015. That's a Tuesday, 7 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time. It's titled, How to Improve Your Investment Portfolio Performance. I'm going to share part of my investment journey with you. We'll learn what portfolio return you can expect from investing. Find out the four keys to boosting your portfolio returns. I will have stories of my investment experience, things I've learned. I'll answer your money and retirement questions. That's live. You can register at moneyfortherestofus.net forward slash live. You can also go to the homepage and find the link there. If you can't be there, you got something going on that night, go ahead and register. I will send you the recording. If you're listening to this after September 8th, go ahead and go to moneyfortherestofus.net. I'm going to be doing live webcast on an ongoing basis so you can sign up for the next one. While you're there at moneyfortherestofus.net, you can sign up for my insider's guide and I'll email the show notes to you weekly. That's also where I'm providing a weekly summary article of the podcast episode every week in your inbox for free. Sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.net. Everything I've shared with you in this particular episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.